Hey, it's Martine. So before we start the show, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be talking to the Post's advice columnist, Carolyn Hacks, to have a conversation about the holidays and how to navigate tough situations with friends and family. So I'll be asking her some advice on my own behalf, about my own life. Um, but I'd also love to bring her some questions from Post Reports listeners. So if you have a personal conundrum that you could use some advice on, we want to hear it. Send an email or better yet, a voice memo to postreports.com and tell us what's on your mind. We can't wait to listen. Thanks. When you think back on Donald Trump's four years as president, one of the hallmarks of his administration was the Remain in Mexico program. This policy that forced asylum seekers to wait in Mexico for their asylum hearings rather than waiting in the relative safety of the U.S. One of the first things that President Biden did coming into office was canceling that program. But now it's back. So I've spent the last several days in El Paso and Ciudad Juarez talking to shelter operators, immigration advocates, migrants, who really are just confused about what this means. That's reporter Arlise Hernandez, and she's been on the border in Texas, covering the restart of this controversial program, which is formerly known as MPP. The migrant protection protocols are better known as Remain in Mexico. This is a Trump-era policy that was condemned by human rights groups and immigration advocates because of the dangers that it placed immigrants in. The Biden administration made this an early priority to terminate MPP, and he did earlier this year. But then the states of Texas and Missouri sued saying that the Biden administration did this erroneously, and a federal judge agreed with them and ordered the Biden administration to restart the program. Because of a federal court order, this thing that we thought would end with the Trump administration isn't actually going away. And now people are asking, what does this mean for asylum seekers? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 8th. Today, we're talking to Arlise about the revival of the Remain in Mexico program. We're going to revisit the story of one family who dealt with the awful ramifications of this program. And we're also going to unpack how the Biden administration is promising that this version of Remain in Mexico is going to look different and why it's being revived in the first place. So is it fair to say the Biden administration is being forced by the courts to restart this program? Yes, even in their own words, they they call this the court-ordered re-implementation of MPP. I would say first to all of these people that it is not our preference to be re-implementing and re-instituting the migrant protection program. This is White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We are doing that uh, because of a court order and legal uh, requirement to do so, and that we have put in place a number of changes to make uh, from the Department of Homeland Security to uh, improve some humanitarian components. Uh, but we still feel that the program is inefficient, inhumane, and we are not. Uh, we weren't. We, we were, did not eagerly re-implement it. I should say. So the court ordered the Biden administration to restart the program because they felt that the memo that the Biden administration issued to end it 
was done improperly, that the justification they provided wasn't in compliance, that it was capricious in, in the way they had done it. So essentially the writing of the memo to end it did not comply with federal rules. On the flip side of that, leaders in Texas and Missouri, both of whom have been extremely critical of the Biden administration and their management of border issues, felt that MPP under Trump was a program that worked, that it kept thousands of migrants out of the United States and sifted through what they, you know, believed to be large numbers of fraudulent or illegitimate asylum claims and kept them out of the country. In reality, you know, this program as we know it now did not give a lot of people who were hoping for protection in the United States a true due process opportunity to make those claims in U.S. immigration courts. So what is going to be different now that this program is being put back in place, that these asylum seekers will have to begin waiting again in Mexico rather than within the United States? So during the previous iteration of MPP, Mexico actually made very little effort or expressed very little concern about the well-being of migrants and their plight in Mexico in this process. But with the second iteration, Mexico has actually been very forceful in pushing for more humanitarian protections for migrants. And one of the, as part of the negotiations between the Biden administration, as well as the administration of Andres Manuel López Obrador, the president of Mexico. So there are several humanitarian adjustments that have been made to the program that they hope will better protect migrants in this process. But again, even the UN's office, International Office of Migration, will tell you that this is not a policy that they endorse. They're going to help. Many humanitarian organizations and NGOs have said they won't help. They won't help the Biden administration implement what they see as an inhumane program that cannot be made humane in any way. And so... uh, you know, that's why I'm here in El Paso to see how this is all going to work, because there's a lot of questions and not many answers from the Biden administration exactly on what this will look like in real life. Arlise, obviously Remain in Mexico is a program that you have spent a huge amount of time covering. Earlier this year, you published this two-part series for our show that essentially documented the conditions and the impact of MPP by following along with one asylum seeker named Nancy. Nancy is from El Salvador. She fled with her two children and ended up stuck in this camp in Matamoros, Mexico. You got to know her and traded voice memos back and forth with her over a pretty significant period of time. Buenas noches, Areli. Buenas tardes, Areli. Buenos días, Areli. ¿Cómo está? Sí, está bien. I want to talk a little bit more about that story and how that illuminates some of the problems that these advocates are fearing could persist with this new version of Remain in Mexico. And I would also love to play a few clips of Nancy and her experiences from that story. So just to set the scene, um, let's start by hearing the opening of the first episode. And this is a view entering the camp for the first time in February of last year, 2020. As I walked into the camp for the first time, I just remember my feet kicking up a dust storm. This migrant camp just kept going for about a half a mile. There were hundreds of tents of different colors, of different shapes. 
that had earthen stoves. I could smell the different meals that were being cooked, the mesquite that was being burned that had been chopped off of trees along the river. I saw children playing in the dirt with soccer balls. I saw teenagers in this one location where they could charge their phones all sort of together, looking down at their phones. Entire families that were down by the river cleaning their clothes and dishes and using the river as a source of water. Folks speaking with all kinds of different accents that could hear the distinct Salvadoran accent, a distinct Honduran accent. I could hear Venezuelans. I could hear Cubans. And everyone seemed to have a terrible story about what had brought them to that particular moment and why they were seeking asylum. So the camp that you witnessed and described from 2020 is one that lacked really basic infrastructure, things like sanitary facilities or security. In what way is the Biden administration trying to avoid these conditions with the restart of MPP? The camp that existed in Matamoros after Biden wound down the program no longer exists. It's back to being a municipal park. Mexican authorities are hoping that these camps don't reemerge and that instead of gathering near the International Bridge, the help of international NGOs will intervene and take folks to shelters that are ready to care for them, that would have security, that would keep them out of the hands of organized crime, that would avoid the situation that Nancy experience living in a tent, you know, and and this itinerant life without sort of the, you know, basic amenities to to clean and and to to be, you know, of hygiene and, and other things you need to be healthy. So it sounds like these would be at least more permanent facilities, too, that this isn't something that would crop up organically, but would be like a place and a building and would have like actual resources that were designated to make sure that it doesn't become something like what Nancy experienced in Matamoros. That is definitely the idea in theory. It remains unclear whether in practicality that is what's going to happen. And to be clear, there are already camps in in specific parts uh, along the border in Mexico, Reynosa and Tijuana, that preceded the restart of this program exists right now. But the idea specifically with MPP and, and someone like Nancy would be, yeah, that they would go to facilities that are hygienic, that are built for them or that exist for them to go through this process and hopefully get resolution quickly. That's the other difference. Nancy's process took forever because of the pandemic shut down the border. The Biden administration said they hope to have these cases resolved in 180 days. Hmm. The other thing that I remember so vividly from Nancy's story is how exposed she and her family were to the elements, to wind, to rain, to a hurricane, to cold snaps, um, and how they were didn't have anything to kind of protect themselves against that. That July, Hurricane Hannah swept 
through the region in South Texas and northern Mexico. At that point, Nancy had been in the Matamoros camp for 11 months. And that hurricane really just underscored how uncomfortable the camp was. In this video that she sent me, there was water running everywhere, mud. Folks were digging out little like canals to divert the water away from the camp and towards the river. And really there was no escape from the wind and the rain except to be cloistered inside of these tents, not knowing, you know, if that wind was going to shred the sidings of what is essentially your house. So in theory, these are conditions that people like Nancy would not be facing with these new camps. In theory, I'm in El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, where there is an unusually robust sort of migrant support system and number of shelters for migrants. That is not the case, however, across the six other border cities where MPP is set to restart. Even in the one of the you know municipal run shelters that I went to, like they depend on sort of donations of gas to run the heater. It's it's winter time here in in South Texas and particularly in El Paso where it gets cold. So, you know, you still could have situations across the border where migrants who are enrolled in these programs might not have sufficient shelter either in, you know, these facilities or through their own means, you know, as they wait for these cases. It's just truly unclear, you know, how any of this is going to play out. And the truth of the matter is, is that these some of these migrant camps already exist. So the same thing just keeps on happening, whether... And PP goes, restarts or not. You also brought up the issue of safety. And one takeaway that I had from hearing Nancy's story was just how much people in her situation are at risk of exploitation, of extortion, of violence. And I want to play this clip from the story of Nancy and her two young children being kidnapped, essentially, before they even arrived at the camp. Nancy had fled El Salvador in 2019 and began her journey north with her two teenage children, Andrea and and David. The way that Nancy tells it is that she paid someone to drive her to the Guatemalan border. And then from there, she took a series of buses. And sometimes they walked from one border to the next. She arrived in Mexico, in northern Mexico, in Reynosa, which is across the river from McAllen, Texas, in around August 2019, in the the summer. Nancy arrives by bus to Reynosa. And is at the bus station when she and her two children are kidnapped by armed men wearing black balaclavas. And they're stuffed into another vehicle along with about, you know, two dozen other migrants or travelers and taken to some unknown location. But what she remembers is that it was a house and it was abandoned. And they were being yelled at and screamed at by these kidnappers. The kidnappers wanted phone numbers from them of relatives that had been helping them finance their journeys. And in Nancy's case, this was relatives in California to ask for ransom to release them. 
Nancy felt as though she had no choice, handed over the phone number to family members in California. There's a recording of Nancy calling her family, having already fallen into the hands of her kidnappers, and you can hear the stress in her voice. She's whispering and in a low voice, speaking very quickly, giving instructions to her family, basically telling them we have fallen into the hands of the Zetas, which is a dangerous cartel in northern Mexico. So, Arlise, what I understood from your reporting on Nancy is that this experience is actually really common, that the conditions that were created in part by MPP essentially became a business opportunity for cartels in Mexico to extort vulnerable immigrants like Nancy. How is the Biden administration going to prevent this from happening again as they restart this program? You're absolutely right. Criminal organizations adapt to whatever changes occur in U.S. immigration policy. And so what the Biden administration has proposed, or at least what they have worked out with the U.N.'s International Office of Migration in Mexico, is that the moment MPP enrollees return back to Mexico, they go first to a Mexican government building on the other side and then are securely transported in these NGO buses to shelters or other locations where they are staying throughout these border cities. So the idea is that they will no longer, you know, sort of be left to their own devices once they come off the international bridge upon returning, because that's what made them targets the first time around, is that the cartels knew what time the U.S. were sending these people back over the bridge, so they just wait for them. They actually waited under a, a, in Juarez under a specific tree, just waiting for these MPP enrollees to come down. One immigration uh, attorney described it to me as the, the kidnapping tree. The oh, idea is that they won't just, you know, walk off the bridge, but be going to sort of secure locations and then put on secure buses uh, and transported that way. That they'll essentially be escorted every step of the way so that there's not an opportunity for these people to be approached by members of criminal organizations. That's the idea. Again, we'll, we'll see what actually happens. After the break, why this is just one part of the refugee crisis on the southern border. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It sounds like there are so many 
unanswered questions about what this program will look like in its new and improved version. In terms of making decisions about who actually ends up having to remain or, or wait in Mexico as they as they wait an asylum trial, how is that potentially going to change under the Biden administration? Again, we don't really know, but what we understand from DHS court filings is that it will be applied or people will be selected among those who, you know, cross the border between ports of entry or cross the border, you know, in the river or in other places. And from those group of people who are, you know, apprehended every single day, I think here in El Paso is like 600 to 700 every day, 30 to 35 of them will be selected for enrollment in MPP. We don't really know who these people are, what their nationalities are, you know, and why they're being, you know, specifically selected for this program. Meanwhile, you know, hundreds of others are being expelled back to Mexico without ever having a chance to make a silent claim. So it's really, it doesn't sound like at this point, we don't know, but it doesn't sound like, you know, people are being enrolled on the strength of their asylum claims, but sort of, if you will, luck of the draw. And what about the question of whether people who are coming over the border might have real risks of going back to Mexico? So the other thing that they're trying to do is that if you are apprehended by Border Patrol and you are enrolled in MPP, a Customs and Border Patrol agent will actually proactively ask you or is supposed to ask you, do you fear being returned to Mexico uh, because of any violence or any threats that you face? And that did not happen under the Trump administration as far as we know. You know, migrants themselves had to bring up, oh, I can't be returned to Mexico because I'm in fear for my life. What that whole process does, it by expressing fear... It triggers sort of this 24-hour period where you, as a migrant, get to consult with an attorney and argue or explain why to an asylum officer you cannot be returned to Mexico. And honestly, the standard for meeting fear with an asylum officer as the law stands is pretty high. You have to explain that you face like future threats, that by returning to Mexico, something really, really bad is going to happen to you. And sometimes bad things that happened to you in the past don't really count towards that. It seems so complicated, though, because I I think Nancy's story really demonstrates that essentially any person in this position who's being sent back over the border to Mexico faces a credible threat, right? That the risks and potential opportunities for violence, for extortion, for kidnapping are so high that it would seem like almost anyone could make the case that they face potential harm by going back to Mexico and and waiting there. That's exactly the argument that immigration attorneys and advocates have been saying is like, like who won't express a fear of being returned to Mexico, you know, because that journey is not an easy one and it's filled with all kinds of dangers and violence. And again, it's just one of these things that we just really don't know how it's going to operate. In fact, I'm this morning waiting for the first group to re-return to Mexico here in the next couple of hours because they were supposed to return yesterday. But whatever delays, you know, something delayed that process and they have been not they've not been returned. 
to Mexico and the sort of second part of that. And what immigration attorneys sort of suspect is that everyone claiming fear in Mexico, it's, just, it's going to slow down that entire process because you're going to have to give them access to attorneys. You're going to have to give them that 24 hours to make their case. So it's just, again, one thing is is the way this is going to work on paper. And, and one thing is the way it's going to work in, in a practical reality. I want to play one last clip that I think really illustrates the toll that this program has taken on asylum seekers and their lives. You could absolutely hear the tension in Nancy's voice and the fear in her voice whenever she talked about what was going on around her. David was in a scuffle with a couple of the migrant boys and was struck in the head with a stick that he had to get stitches for. She herself, after sleeping on the ground for months and months and months. Her shoulder became dislocated for an extended amount of time where she couldn't use it. The phrase that she used constantly throughout our conversations was, it is so difficult to live here. I can't even explain it to you. It is, it's just life here is difficult. Or at least I'm, I'm curious hearing that tape again now of the toll that this took on Nancy. What are your reflections about what it means that this program remains a part of how the U.S. does business? That's a great question, Martine. I think in listening to Nancy, I'm just reminded of all the pain and the lack of options that exist for people who are seeking protection in the United States. MPP was in part created under the assumption that the people who are asking for this protection, you know, don't legitimately have a claim on it, that their cases don't fit the asylum law of the United States and they don't qualify And that could, I'm not sure that that changes with the restart of MPP. What it does show is that the United States Congress and executive, you know, leaders have not figured out how to meet the realities of what these asylum seekers and these migrants are are bringing forth when they make these journeys. You know, we say don't come, but what is back home is not anything to stay for or is not something any one of us would would want to live through either. And I think sort of the big takeaway for me 
and watching this play out again is again just like the lack of other kinds of options for migrants or programs to apply for that might offer some modicum of protection, even if it's not asylum. Arlise Hernandez is a reporter for The Post. The tape of Nancy that you heard comes from this incredible two-part series called Marooned in Matamoros. It aired earlier this year on our show, and it documents her journey and her fight for asylum in the U.S. We'll put a link to that series in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon and edited by Ariel Plotnick. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.